0: the end of 2022 or by the time you're listening to this the very very beginning of 2023 that's how we planned it out so we're the very last people to do our year end list but we're also the ones who have the most encompassing because we finally got to the very end of the year and I know both me and you Niv have uh, had some time to catch up these last couple of weeks obviously I'm Jordan Conrad this is my co-host you can say your name, <laughs> boss. um Hi, yeah man. so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you you don't know it by now what are you doing some people this is going to be their first episode end of year lists are something that a lot of I mean I know I love to listen to random people's end of year lists I always love to know what's going on in others heads things I've missed things that I also loved um, you've been catching up Nev
1: Yeah, I've been marathoning. I've been marathoning because I realized that while I was not lacking in terms of my television viewership this past year, I was severely lacking with the movies.
0: I actually had the same thing. Yeah? Yeah, totally. I just watched the rehearsal. I actually marathoned. My uh, Christmas tradition is to watch Star Wars, so I marathoned the first season of The Mandalorian to prepare for the new season coming up, so I'll finally be caught up by the time March rolls around.
1: Nice. But yeah, you know, like I took some of your suggestions and I think some of them made it to my list. That's awesome. But yeah, I mean, overall like a good year for film. I'm excited to talk about like our inevitable Oscar sort of season that is coming oh, up. Yeah, there's there's some really good ones. Yeah, I think it's going to be a really tough sort of bracket to predict.
0: Agreed. Um we'll talk about this on our Oscars in more detail, but the best picture is kind of a conundrum in my mind. I have one that I think is the safe, obvious choice, but then there's like a million other ones that I feel like would be better suited and also kind of work in their own way. Absolutely. And things might change. Power dynamics might shift. Obviously, um, Babylon just came out, so it hasn't really had time to do much Oscar runway stuff, but Babylon could have some pretty major takeaways, even though it is kind of an imperfect film, but I won't talk about that one today, even though I really did love it because I have some really lovely honorable mentions. One that I just saw yesterday on the count of three, uh, Have you heard of this one? I have not. So it's on Hulu. Its director and uh, lead actor is Gerard Carmichael, who I actually had just heard of because he is going to be doing the Golden Globes in about two weeks. So Wow.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love him. Yeah, I think I told you about that. So you know Gerard Carmichael? Where do you know him from? Only from, he like hosted SNL, and he did an opening monologue that I thought was really, really great.
0: He got, I think, an Emmy for, or an Emmy novel at least for that monologue from what I remember.
1: I'm not sure but he did He was, was sort of tapped to do it because he had like an HBO comedy special. Totally. And that's when like he really started popping in terms of like the mainstream or at least close to mainstream. So yeah, he's I, friends with Bo Burnham. I, yes, he is. And I think like it makes sense. I feel like they're both they have a similar vibe to each other, which is why I really like them. But yeah, I, I think he is a really phenomenal sort of artist from what I've seen of him.
0: So. He really is. So on the count of three has that 35 millimeter vintage look to it but it's about two guys who have a blood pact to do a murder suicide on each other Mm -hmm. the opening of the film has both of these guys with a gun trained on each other's heads and they say okay on the count of three one two and then the movie starts so that's where the name comes from and so throughout the movie you see the last 24 hours of these guys lives and it's really an interesting meditation on mental health Which is something that's very near and dear to me And so I thought it was just Absolutely fantastic So that's gotta be on my honorable mentions Another one that also does fit in kind of nicely Into the bracket of mental health Is We're All Going to the World's Fair Which is this I think it's a debut Directing project I don't have the info on this on these two As ready as my mains But uh, We're All Going to the World's Fair Has this young actor Who is just fantastic She plays a small part in the new movie Bones and All, although she's like two years older because I think this was one of those movies that was being made around quarantine. So, you know, she's been growing up. But We're All Going to the World's Fair was pitched as this horror movie. It feels like a creepy creepypasta. What, and what does that mean, Jordan? <laughs> google it babe <laughs> I, a creepypasta is, is a horror but it's horror for the internet so it's got its own culture and it's hard to explain but world going to the world's fair follows this internet pathway and that's what I think is really cool about it we were talking about Bo Burnham and he talked on the A24 podcast with Gerard Carmichael a couple of years ago about how making content about the internet is so difficult because you have to work on the internet's terms and the best way that he posited was to allow for the film to leave a lot of things unaddressed. This is kind of why We're All Going to the World's Fair was kind of divisive when it came out. Again, because it's pitched as a horror movie and doesn't really deliver scares. It is meditative. It deals a lot with our relationship to screens. It deals a lot with how we interact with others on the internet and power imbalances that can happen when people interact, especially young girls interact with people on the internet. It's it's really touching and it's scary in, in a more existential way and i thought it was brilliant it's exactly my kind of brand mm-hmm. of horror is something really conceptual really introspective so yeah we're all going to the world's fair on hbo is fantastic and um the gerard carmichael on the count of three that's on hulu niv do you have any honorable mentions you want to shout out before we get to our lists
1: oh yeah absolutely i mean like the first one for me is definitely the movie prey by Dan Trachenberg starring Amber Myth, thunder Wow. I know. Isn't that a crazy honorable mention? Um, Also a Hulu film. I just thought it was interesting because that is a franchise that I
0: kind of consider to be dead. Yeah. Obviously, there was the critically panned, even more so than is Iron Man 3, which is the Shane Black Predators movie. Mm -hmm.
1: And then after that, they made another one, didn't they? I mean, this is the one they made after that one because Shane Black was in the original. Yeah. Predator film that's how he had like the clout to to try to make this one yeah oh interesting like this one in particular I really appreciated because I I saw a meme after this movie was released where it was like yeah I wish all these big budget franchises were made this way put alien in the shogunate era put you know final destination in the pirate era and could you tell me what the formula is and how it plays out in Prey yeah because I know that it's a uh Predator movie is it a period piece? Yes, it is a period piece that's grounded by you know an exploration of Native American culture. Oh, interesting. Specifically, the Comanche tribe. I think I'm saying it right. Yeah. And what's so it's like that you know Great Plains frontier sort of uh, vibe, and obviously like it's rooted in their you know hunting culture of of that Native American sort of sensibility, and it also talks about like how it was such a lawless sort of place. And the only way you could prove yourself is if you could hunt something that was bigger than you, which is such an amazing sort of parallel to what Predator is, this big monster that thrives on hunting you as its prey. But, you know, like the things it comes up against are also sort of Predators in their own, which is this warrior woman, Komachi woman, played by Amber myth, Thunder. That's why that meme that I saw really affected me because I was like, yeah, that's how you fix these stale sort of big franchises. You... You take, you know, the core of them and which which is at least in Predator, like the whole thing, it's like prey predator versus prey. And then you really ground it in historical periods that thrive in sort of that theme and also cultures that thrive in that theme because it, it makes it that much more powerful. It's not just exploring this big alien monster. It's actually exploring like a culture that we don't talk about and how cool that culture really is. I mean, that entire movie is actually dubbed in... Komachi as well. So you can watch that whole movie in that Native American language, which is amazing. I
0: almost wish that they would have originally had the actors speak in their native tongue and just have it all be subbed. But I know that it's also a big franchise tentpole movie, even though I don't think it had a theatrical release.
1: No, it was Hulu, which is why it was made possible to have that option in the first place. And but I think be a little bit more experimental. That's really cool. Yeah, but that's what I mean. It's like the first step towards, I think, fixing this problem of what do you do with these really old franchises that people constantly try to re- revitalize. Yeah, Attempt to rehydrate a rehydrated corpse. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and the best way to do that is just grounded in something real as opposed to just make it more ridiculous, which is what Shane Black did in 20, 2018 with his version. Uh, my second honorable mention was actually Fire Island by Andrew Ann. Oh, I hadn't seen that yeah. one. Yeah, it's great. That's, uh, th- I believe that's a retelling of like an old Old, like what is that Um, like an old book it's an adaptation of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice Jane Austen so it's Austen but with gay men right yes exactly it's basically gay Pride and Prejudice but done in such a really smart and unique sort of way also released on Hulu and uh, yeah. produced by Searchlight Pictures it stars a lot of Asian American men uh, like Joel Kim Booster and Bowen Yang for instance Bowen Yang's a great actor another SNL amazing person it takes that story and it does something fresh with it. It would be really easy to be like yeah, it focuses on on gay men, it focuses on like Asian American gay men, but it does more than that. It actually tries to talk about like how within that original story of pride and prejudice, the main character doesn't want to get married because she doesn't trust sort of the men that she she likes. She also is like no, I don't want a man to entrap me because I am a woman. Men constantly entrap women in my period. But here it's like talking about sort of that hookup culture of I don't want to settle down because I feel like I will be entrapped which is like an interesting spin on it and such like a toxic man perspective to have yeah and especially because like I have a lot of gay friends myself and they're really embroiled in that hookup culture me too man well we went to we went to theater school so we have plenty of friends
0: who range of a very large spectrum of because we had a very diverse school so yeah exactly Case in point, you're a very diverse man. You're in Thailand right now, right, Nim?
1: Yeah. Case in point. I am. I am in Thailand doing this recording at 1 a.m. You're a champ.
0: You're the MVP
1: of, of 2022. Man. Yeah. I'm the real honorable mention <laughs> <Yes>. here. Uh- <laughs> That's so true. I think that's the thing. Like it it showcases that Jane Austen's work can be applied to sort of any sex and any orientation. And by just tweaking it a little bit, right? It's still talking about the feeling of being entrapped as the barrier. It's talking about it in terms of like how gay men sort of compose themselves in this sort of hookup culture because it's much harder as a man to step away from that culture and commit yourself to a genuine connection because whether you're a gay man or a straight man, you're still much more attracted to that type of culture, as as I've discovered. I mean, I am a straight man, but every time I talk to my male gay friends, they're like, yeah, I am afraid of genuine connections.
0: Well, guys still be guys, you know? A lot of guys are like that regardless. Exactly. It wouldn't change if your sexuality was one way or another, you know? But that's really interesting that your two movies have this conceptual tie as well. They're both like these beautiful... Exquisite corpse versions of something that could easily be stale and badly executed, and we've seen actually like this year, like in both cases, stale, badly executed versions of this. Netflix had a had an Austin adaptation that kind of landed with a th- landed with a thud. Yeah, the Dakota Johnson one. Yeah. Of course, every year there's like a bad IP movie that comes out that we're like, why did this have to be made?
1: I mean, you've said this so many times. We live in an era. Sequels, adaptations, and remakes.
0: It has to be yeah like sequels adaptations and remakes are just truly the most financially viable we've seen this again and again and again this last weekend Babylon just came out it failed to gross even 5% of its 100 million dollar budget on opening weekend even though it had a really well known director it obviously had two huge movie stars even despite that something that doesn't have that sort of like neat selling point is really hard to glom Mandu. Now, granted, Babylon is kind of a messy movie. I need to move away from that one because we can talk about that on our Oscars conversation. Um, movies, man. So for your top five of your movies. Oh, yeah.
1: We have to we have to go on our own yes. countdown. Yes. yeah we do <laughs> Count down to five so starting from my five specifically my fifth since we're alternating I actually want to put Mad God as my fifth uh, best movie of the Ooh. year we should hold off on talking about Mad God because I have that one at not my
0: number five but we can talk about that one in a second uh,
1: yeah I feel like we have a very I feel like our list is very similar actually I mean what's interesting about Mad God is like it was released last year in 2021 um, but it was a very limited release and then it was released widely this year and I watch it this year
0: Well, it's one of those that's been released periodically there is an early cut that was the first like half of the movie from back in like 2018 or something like that I have a whole timeline on the blog that you can check out I wrote it It, the movie first had a wide release on Shudder earlier this year so that's all on my on my blog at kaboomviper.com so I actually have a very long arduous thing on that but let's hold off talking more Mad God because I love that that movie but it's not my number
1: five Um, but I'm glad you really really liked it a very inventive movie yeah exactly and I think that's what pushed it to number five I don't think it was I think it was visually deep but I think beyond that it was because it was so atmospheric and so moody and so visual and I would recommend it as just like a visual experience I mean it's a much more interesting visual experience than Avatar 2 is don't watch Avatar 2 instead watch this well
0: that's (laughs) I mean it's it's kind of apples and oranges but I would degree Avatar 2 isn't on my list. okay my number five actually blends well with Mad God which is uh, Marcel Duchamp with shoes on also a movie that's taken a long time to make um, started back in 2010 obviously with an internet short that a lot of people know starring Jenny Slate. So Jenny Slate, I think this was right after she was dropped off of SNL. She worked on Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. And it's just this, like, shell character with, like, a squeaky little voice. There's not a whole lot to this internet video, but she takes this and makes a full movie where she lives in this house. She has these intricate contraptions, or he, I guess, is the pronoun of the character. He has these intricate contraptions that he goes and he lives at this house with people in it Most of the time and then it gets airbnb'd out the sort of narrator character comes in the interesting thing about it is that it's kind of in some way about a marriage so Dean Fleischer Camp directed this this is his first directorial project he wrote this with Jenny Slate they were married and divorced around the time when this started to come into production but they kept working on it past their divorce and you can kind of feel the isolation of these two people in the film. And in some way, the movie has that subtext of divorce while still being about community and friendship and family. And so it's really, it's got this, like, sadness to it that feels kind of implicit and subtle and soft and ultimately kind of has that indie quality that you look for in, like, a Garden State-style early 2000s indie movie. And it's just really beautiful. And it's also really wholesome. Like, it has a little bit of that sadness in the end, but during you know the high points, it's really triumphant and really beautiful. But it's also just like it's also a vibe movie. But it's like a very wholesome vibe.
1: I movie. feel like all our movies on the list are vibe uh, movies. So
0: so, but we'll I'll get to that in a second. All my TV shows I think are definitely a little bit more intricately put together than vibes. But I tend to prefer vibes. Oh, also, Isabella Rossellini is is in this movie. She plays the grandma nice. and yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's like it's like kind of random out of nowhere. But I'm like, I was like, who is this amazing Italian actress? That's her.
1: Okay, your number four is. I mean, my number four is actually Tar. Tar. Yeah, I know. I know.
0: We'll have a we'll have a conversation on Tar in, in a little bit more detail. But we might as well. We might as well open it up a
1: little bit on the podcast. Yeah, we can't keep pushing my breakdowns. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, I mean, directed by Todd Field, released in September in Venice. And this is his first movie in years. Yeah, 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 he's because he's just been doing like a string of unrealized projects, but he's received three Academy Award nominations. So it's not like he came out of nowhere. Not at all. He's just been taking like a break with his projects. In so many ways, it's a standard Kate Blanchett movie. It's Death to be successful, Oscar bait, all of that, and it is very much that, and it succeeds in that. But it also pushes forward this genre of this dark artist that we've been seeing with Whiplash and Black Swan before it. But here it takes sort of like this opposite approach because usually in those two films, you know, the main characters were just like underdogs who just started out in their respective and really cruel industries, but. K- Blanchett's character is the master of her cruel industry she's a conductor and she has a lot of power
0: at the uh, university that she teaches at
1: not just the university just her world right everything. well true I mean everything
0: she goes out to dinner and people like
1: practically kiss her feet And, I mean, you know, this movie has a lot to do with the Me Too movement. I will often say that it's a movie about cancel
0: culture, which is just kind of my way of shortening it. I don't know if I even still, like, agree with that. I actually have very complicated feelings on the entire label of cancel culture. But if there is something that I think defines it most adeptly, it's this. Because it shows both the humanity of the character and the darkness within Hey, what's up, Jordan from the future. We're about to dive into some light spoilers, and we're also talking about some adult themes and power dynamics and sex and stuff like that. So just be aware that we're getting into some mossy territory here.
1: All right, back to the show. Well, because we shouldn't beat around the bush. I mean, this is a character that grooms women who work underneath her, including like students um, who want to be successful musicians well, let's let's not be too let's not be too explicit about that. But I think you've done it just right. But, you know, this is a character that grooms them and then she gets caught for it. And then she has to deal with the fallout. of And it's really interesting because the movie humanizes her because she is a human being. And I think because of cancel culture, we forget that there are human beings behind the awfulness that they commit. And at the same time, it, it challenges us to sort of not only separate the art versus with the artist, but also trying to examine the artist for the humanity that they I
0: think what have. I loved about it is that it shows you almost right up front who this woman is and then throughout the movie attempts to convince you the opposite. The format of the film forces you to love this woman even despite the fact that she is in some ways kind of a monster and so there's that interplay.
1: And in so many ways that purely has to do with how um, sort of amazing Kate Blanchett is. It's that whole thing with Anna de we talked about with Blonde and Deepwater, so much of it is just like that actress doing so, so much heavy lifting and it's the same. Kate Blanchett makes a really despicable character really lovable, really empathetic and, and of course that has to do with the script and sort of the, the filmmaking itself, but so much of that heavy lifting is purely because Kate Blanchett is embodying this person. The one reason it's lower on my list as opposed to higher on my list is because I I feel like the movie ended. I think at the one hour forty mark, and then when they she transitions, it epilogued. Yeah, yeah. The epilogue felt like uh, Tar Two, right? Like the beginning of Tar Two. We should have a longer conversation about that epilogue. What it tells us, what
0: why I think it is important, but also why it it isn't like a five banger on my list either. Mm-hmm. Um, you won't see Tar on my on a, on my top five just because I have seen like over fifty movies this year. So yeah. <laughs> I've actually got kind of a a really dense list even though I think a lot of them are things that a lot of people have seen. Mad God, let's talk about it. It's my number four. It's another kind of like passion project. So Todd Field wrote and directed Tar and spent almost like a decade working on this. Mad God itself was like a long 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 passion project. He started working on it prior to the advent of a lot of digital technology, which is why it is all of this handmade handcrafted world it's amazing Phil Tippett who's well known for a lot of his special effects work he did the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park I always tell people Phil Tippett is the reason why Jurassic Park looks so good and why none of the other Jurassic Park movies look as good because he is like a dinosaur expert he knows the physics of how dinosaurs move and that has nothing to do with Mad God except for the fact that he really has that tangible sense of how to do stop motion and I think other people have this year understood that you you know, the people who worked on Marcel Duchamp. I think, did a great job with it. The people who worked on Pinocchio by Guillermo del Toro did a really great job on that, which we'll also talk about a little bit later. But Mad God, I, I think, is, like, the opus. And it's also just such a fascinating and unusual world. It's, like, this world made of trash. It's fantastic. Obviously, very narratively ambiguous, but incredible. And short, sweet, beautiful, and, like, 100% imagination, Is why I love Mad God so much. Is there anything else you wanted to say about Mad God? I know I let you talk for a little bit
1: about it. Yeah. I mean, not really, but yeah. Uh, (laughs) uh, I, like I said, I think visually it's a visual masterpiece. It's so creative. It's so brilliant. It's so brave what it's trying to do because it's so different. I would recommend people to watch it just on that. It's not, but it's not an easy watch. I don't, I think it takes a few times to watch it to really understand what the creative minds were trying trying to achieve with it because it's you know it, it's so thematic and it's so atmospheric it's not going to spoon feed you information at all and you just have to judge it for the art it is but again i highly recommend watching it because it's unlike anything you've ever watched so
0: i'd say that's true with almost everything on my top five for movies and actually for tv i think works the same way is that i think that it's like you really need to re-watch this to to feel like you really understand it i'm saying this as sort of a preempt to a lot of the movies that I'm going to be talking about in a second that I think you can go through it on your first pass and you'll get something out of it, but it really works better after your second and third viewing. Mad I think, is a perfect example of that.
1: Absolutely. And I really want to stress like how different it is from everything else. Like, absolutely. I agree with Jordan. I think like every movie that we're listing today, you know, is is worth overanalyzation and giving it like two passes in order to fully get what's happening and what, you know, the creative minds are trying to do with these amazing stories. But at the same time, like I said, man, God has no point of reference because it's so unique. It's complete fantasy, but it's not like Star Wars fantasy. It's
0: you've you've taken eight tabs of acid and are like floating above the earth's atmosphere
1: kind of fantasy. Exactly, That's what I mean. It's not an easy watch, but if anything else, it will be an interesting watch. (laughs) Yeah, you'll be like, well, this is different. All right. Uh, You're number three, man. Uh, my number three is After Sun. You know, I feel like where Tar. Uh, So After Sun, directed and written by Charlotte Wells, who she did a short film, sort of that spawned After Sun. Because oh, so
0: After Sun is sort of her debut that she's been workshopping with uh, with shorts, like Whiplash, kind of was for Damien Chazelle. Yeah,
1: Damien Chazelle, exactly. But I think this one is deeply connected to her because it's it's sort of autobiographical. I mean, both films were. Oh. Yeah, so the she relates to the little girl. I'm assuming. Yeah, the story is essentially like about a little girl's relationship with her father and how it, when she was a child, she felt like she had this perfect relationship with him, but because she was a child, she couldn't see that he was actually like wrestling with really horrible demons within himself. And I mean, like just like Tar carries this torch of the tortured artist, I feel like um, after Sun carries the torch of of how children view view the world in movies and view darkness in movies like in Tangerine or in Eighth Grade to amazing examples uh, and amazing movies that you should watch right now if you haven't. But After Sun in particular just adds to that sort of library of amazing films where where children take the lead and we see the world of the film through their eyes and how incredibly both innocent and uh, and joyous it is but also how incredibly tragic and sad it is because you know the, the entire time she the character has an immense love for her father but she can't do anything to to help him because she is just a child
0: I was literally getting chills as you were talking about it remembering that movie the ending is like Probably my favorite ending of the year. One of my favorites because of just the way that it it ties everything up. It's really, really beautiful and almost kind of literary. Paul Miscal plays the father, obviously, like incredible performance there.
1: But Frankie Corio. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh my God. She's gonna be a star. She she is already a star in this movie yeah I, she's
0: gonna be doing her lydia tar in 2050 i i can feel it in my bones easily like, yeah.
1: i mean she was so natural i it just it felt i think the biggest strength of this movie is that it felt like a documentary at times and it shot like a documentary at times because of frankie corio's performance because she just felt like an actual child uh and read as an actual child as opposed to an actress being a child that is one of the
0: best performances of like childhood ever and like the fact that they were on vacation <laughs> (laughs) I could that was that's on my honorable mentions list there's so many like the 21 I was telling you on text this on the 21 top films of the year for me every single one of them I'm like wow that was such a good movie wow that was such a movie. but this is like my five is basically something that if I was like sitting around and like with a friend I could be like let's pop this in let's watch this and so that's why my number three is Banshees of Inish wait hold on did you want to finish this I
1: mean I was just gonna say like a similar feel because <laughs> I was gonna say if if it wasn't for the number one and number two movies of my list, After Sun would have easily topped it. Like it would have been in any other year, After Sun would have been top conde- contender. I would have ushered it to be like the uh, best picture of the year. But you know, you were just gonna say Banshees of Incheon, which was also one of on my honorable mentions list. So yeah, well.
0: I think we probably have that in uh, in common. We have a lot of things that we would put on our list. I uh, probably directly mentioned mentioned. mentioned things to you to watch that were on my honorable mentions that weren't on my tops because there is just like so much like meaty material on in a lot of these movies. Great year for movies, great year for TV, just great year in general. Banshees of Innishirin is my number three. So this movie is from a man that you and me have loved for a very, very, very long time. Uh, Martin McDonough, who he started as a playwright. His famous play is The Pillow Man, but beauty queen of Leanne is or I think that's how you pronounce it. Yes, it is. The Lieutenant of Inishmore. These plays like shaped me as kind of a teen, honestly. I was like pretty young when I read Lieutenant of Inishmore and my mother gave it to me. She was like, this is one of the funniest things I've ever read. I think you're going to get a lot out of this. And I read it and I really had the exact same experience. And I was like, who is this guy? Like he is truly one of the most unique voices of, well, not our generation, but of our parents' generation. And he has been making just absolutely incredible Incredible work throughout his career. He's had a couple of duds. Um, His last movie, Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing Missouri, I didn't really care for. I think it went a little bit too far into serious terrain, but still, the thing about him, and especially at this point in his career, is that McDonough has this deep sense of dark comedy that when the movie starts, is almost completely absent, but by the end of it, is you could see it like double like bacteria and just like consume whatever product he's put in. And that is Banshees. So Banshees of Inishirin is literally about two friends one of the friends brendan gleason great great choice brendan gleason wakes up one morning he says i don't want to be friends with you anymore and his friend his bestie is colin farrell and colin farrell cannot take no for an answer and that's the movie that's it (laughs) like i i can tell you the rest of the plot and obviously spoil it for you but i won't the whole thing is that that's it and you you'll go into this movie being like that can't be it no that's it it's just an incredible dark comedy just about the heartbreak of friendship and I found it kind of personal to my own life in some ways and I was like wow this is incredible the fact that this guy is just like kind of not a good friend and is acting like a eight year old I'm like wow this is so real I
1: showed this movie to my cousin like I watched it with him and the entire time he was laughing his butt off because it was just so simple it was just like yo I just want to talk to you I just want to be your friend and the other person is like no I don't want to be your friend I've grown bored of you (laughs) and that's as you said that's the whole conflict that's the whole thing that pushes the film and as you said when you pitch it to someone or just like tell them about this movie you're like okay but how long is the movie then and then the movie is almost three hours it's under two hours it's not under two yes it is I don't think so it felt much more than two (laughs) 114
0: minutes I have the Wikipedia up here
1: oh Oh my god then it definitely felt much longer <laughs> <than it did. laughs> and that's why it's not on your list is it yeah, yeah it's not o- only because like while I thought the beginning was amazing it felt really slow because again it wasn't just a story between these two guys but it was the story about this island of this fictional place of insurance while it was very beautiful and very atmospheric eventually I was like I'm so tired of these Irish Gladelands well especially because when you compare it to other Martin McDonough work, especially like in Bruges, for instance, that stars both these amazing actors of Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, you know, and it has much more going for it in almost every scene. Here, it takes a much slower approach. I mean, it, it takes sort of like this play approach where it far more focuses on the intimate and small moments. But at the same time, that's not Martin McDonagh's style when he writes his plays. They're actually far more action-oriented. Things happen all the time and really awful things happen all the time.
0: It's definitely not as action-packed as, like, Lieutenant of Inishmore, which was a play. The interesting thing is that he is writing plays for the screen now. He says, I think it was on Fresh Air, he said, that he is making movies because they run at a faster timeline, and he wants to get things out before he has to leave our mortal coil. And that's the only reason why he is making movies at his age, is because he just wants to put out more, and he wants to write more. And I think that's honestly kind of cool.
1: Yeah, I respect it. I think that's amazing.
0: He just is continuing to make more and more and more work.
1: You're number two. My number two is The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which we've covered. <sighs> you know, we, we did. Covered. I still haven't seen it. That, can you believe it? I am so mad at you. Stop this uh, podcast right now. I know. It's not on streaming. I mean, I don't care. You could, uh, you can rent it on Amazon easily. I don't understand why you haven't. <laughs> I Yeah, I'll be back. You can, you can be up for
0: another two hours. Let me just put it on right now. <laughs> All right, so um, yeah, Nick Cage. Did you know this was on the blacklist? I just, um, I was researching uh, Don't Worry
1: Darling a couple of months ago and found out this started as a blacklist script. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did know that. And I mean, like it took a lot of heavy lifting for this movie to even happen. I mean, like so much as we talked about it in our podcast covering this movie Tom Gormican and Kevin Eden who both wrote this movie uh, essentially sent <laughs> three or four letters to to Nick Cage being like please do this movie um, actually you know they asked him three to four times and eventually wrote him a very personal uh, letter being like please like the reason we're even doing this movie is because we revere you as an actor and as an artist please do this movie it's a tribute to you but like I said the biggest reason I fell in love with this movie was not because it's like a uh, deep crowning achievement of Nick Cage's return to form as, as an amazing actor but also it just did something so different in the sense of like it feels like a biopic about a person who's not only al- alive but a person who's playing himself in said biopic and that's insane to me because it, it, it doesn't f- even though Nick Cage can say it until he dies that he plays a fictionalized version of himself it does not feel like a fictionalized version of himself and because of that you know it, it stands out as more than just A movie it's and it stands out as something that transcends like even the concept of what movie movies are which is ridiculous but so true to who nick cage is as an artist yeah dude
0: he's a beast and i think that this is the perfect tribute to him as a creator because he has had such a unique and varied career you know he's had a lot of traditional stuff but over the past 20 years he's done some really bizarre stuff we've talked about this on our um podcast on unbearable weight of massive talent so i think i'll um stop retreading but yeah dude Nick Cage great actor yeah if there's one movie that I am not going to you know once the new year comes around there's still a lot to see there's some really good stuff even coming out in January that I'm really excited for but before I put this year to bed I definitely have to seek out uh, the unbearable weight of massive talent just because I know I'm gonna love it I know I will definitely probably place that on my
1: high end of my list as well probably not in my top five but But that's what I mean like who would have thought I that I would place it on my top five let alone second place not me yeah I didn't think so either and I feel like I will be the only one who will (laughs) because I don't think he's even gonna get nominated for an Oscar and I think he should he should get nominated for an Oscar yeah
0: well and that kind of speaks more to the Oscars than to the quality of it yeah my number two is something that I do suspect is going to be nominated I doubt it would ever win but nope the thing about a nope that to me it introduces this very specific philosophy I wouldn't be surprised if Jordan Peele's next couple of movies he re- retrenches into it a little bit considering the movie is about it's more about the themes than about or it's about more about the story than the themes and it is really about the reveal of this unusual creature which I'm not going to spoil what it is but it is talking about cameras really um, our relationship to media our relationship to capturing media now that we all have a camera in our pocket and that is what ties a lot of these disparate thematic elements together and- And I think is another great example of something that you watch it once and you have probably something lingering when you finish it. You're like, wow, this is satisfying. This is really interesting. It's a lot like Jaws, I think. It's very Spielbergian. But it's also really difficult to capture on your first watch because of this B-plot that opens the movie and interacts throughout and doesn't feel like it's telling quite the same story at first. You're wondering where it's going to interact intersect. And it never quite does, but it does in some really important ways. And without spoiling it, that is my take on Nope. I also wrote a lot about it on my blog that you can check out if you're interested, but love that movie. I think it's Jordan Peele's best. And I can't wait to rewatch and rewatch and rewatch. It's on Peacock. I don't know if anybody has Peacock, but it's worth the fun. See,
1: now this is why I have to admit something scandalous. I haven't watched Nope. So it will be my New Year's resolution to watch Nope and your New Year's resolution to watch Unbearable Weight of massive talent that sounds great
0: i think we're both gonna have quite a time i mean there's a ton to like it's more of a thriller than horror i think for the first time in jordan peele's career which is why at first i thought no one was going to put this on their end of year lists i was actually really surprised to see as things have started to come out more and more people are on my page because i ranked this top of the list right at the beginning of the year and that's something that is also unique to my um, number one which it's kind of stayed at number one since i first saw it early 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 this year but before i get to that niv your number one of the movies section
1: i feel like it's the same i honestly feel like it's the same choice so i think we should both say it at the same time one two three everything Everything, everywhere everywhere, all all at at once once. (laughs) (laughs) yeah i remember seeing
0: this movie and thinking that it is unique and I, again, something you can watch again and again and again and get more and more out of it because there's so many little segments that come and go within a moment's notice. and they all intersect in really interesting ways. They all tell you something about the characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a deep dive into the human soul and all of the sort of contradictions that come with it. And, I mean, come on. Stephanie Shu, I think, is like, if there's one person that needs to come out with an Oscar, like, this year, it's Stephanie Shu because...
1: I mean, all of them. Michelle Yeoh, ki quan Well, I know. I know Michelle Yeoh is, like,
0: this, this killer, you know. And she's got a great career, and she's got a really, really, really good performance that she's had set up. But she's also playing against Kate Blanchett in the lead actor so i'll i'll let that slide because both of them are giving maybe a career best stephanie shu on the other hand what supporting performance has anything near that level of dynamicism i mean even even michelle yo has you know one character she plays and stephanie shu nails it playing both the like secondary lead and the villain how do you do
1: that it's amazing i mean but that's the thing it's everywhere every, everything everywhere all at once um so true but I think we covered this and talked about this so much, uh, ironically, at the same po- same episode where we talked about unbearable weight of massive talent. It was made in such a unique way. It for, was made for Jackie Chan, and then it was transitioned to Michelle Yeoh as a tribute to her career.
0: And then they changed the name because it was originally Michelle, and then they changed the
1: name. Yeah, because she was like, no, that's my one sort of clause to this for me to do this movie. Don't name the character after me. But, you know, it has to do so much with... I feel feel like it's it encompasses everything that we've been talking about in the the four other movies and the honorable mentions that we've made it consolidates so much of those themes that we talked about in those other movies for instance we talked about like how these big franchises how they can be successful by just grounding them into something real something topical something important something cultural I mean and this movie talks about like the Asian American experience with the whole zeitgeist that we're dealing with which is the multiverse thanks to the Marvel Cinematic Universe all we're seeing is the multiverse and different realities and so much of that has to do also with Rick and Morty and how that's really big in our culture right now honestly I think Rick and Morty predicated even the Daniels of course but that's what I mean I feel like it has all come into this perfect storm of like this is what we're talking about right now in the past five years it was truly just superheroes but now thanks to all sorts of superhero movies moving in that direction alongside with a lot of other movies and shows it's it's just become the focus of the past two years. That the multiverse is the cool thing to to focus a story on right now, and this is the best way to do it, right? By talking about something really important and doing it in a really courageous way that feels fresh and different. And everything, everywhere, all at once has all of that. You know, it goes out of its way to just be artistic, but it also goes out of its way to be just a genuinely good movie and a unique movie. And I. Feel feel like I haven't seen a movie like that in such a long time, because as we said, everything is an adaptation, a sequel or a remake. And this is none of that.
0: What's fascinating is I think it's my favorite action movie I've seen since The Dark Knight. And even The Dark Knight was an adaptation
1: and a sequel.
0: Another great character story that I think has a similar tone that I actually just saw the other day is The Searchers, which is even farther back. But strangely enough, The Searchers is a sequel. (laughs) So even in the same breath that I say that it's among some of the greatest action storytelling ever crafted for film, the only two things I can relate it to are things that have built this character pre-made. And in two hours, you get the entire thesis of what makes... This character tick, and it's—I mean, it's legendary. So it's been said by plenty of other people, but everything, everywhere, all at once. Come on, I'm so glad that was your number one. If team. it
1: doesn't—if it doesn't win Best Picture, then the world should. Well, buy
0: it. I think the world might, and we'll talk about why a little later. But unfortunately, the Best Picture isn't always what ends up winning Best Picture at the Oscars. But maybe we'll see it at the Globes. We'll find out. Um, let's take a quick break, and then we will talk TV. Stay tuned. Tuned and enjoy some light and happy little tunes that I've got picked out for the end of the year. All right, let's talk TV i'm so excited to get into this because it's been like maybe the best year for tv ever yeah
1: i would agree i mean this was this list was so hard to compose i mean i am just proud of myself that every show i picked at least for like my actual top five every show is like in its first season so it just started out it just got out of the gate swinging and my honorable mentions are just continuations of older shows
0: what are your honorable mentions? I just
1: want to speak through this one, uh, these two, because I've actually talked about them on the podcast. We did whole episodes on them, but Hacks and um, the Boys. I thought they were like Hacks was in at season two and The Boys was in at season three. I feel like those shows really like improved on their previous seasons and, and tried really different but really important things. And what I mean by important things is like they talked about really topical situations that we experienced in our society with Hacks. It was sort of a women's role in, in the arts and sort of like that older generation thinking of like what were women's roles and that younger sort of millennial sort of Gen Z thinking of like what women should do to be successful in the comedy industry. And with the boys, it's like that. I feel like it's the only true anti-culture show that we have right now that's like mainstream. And of course, like it combats the whole like zeitgeist that we are currently going through, which is superheroes. And it just calls it out as being like bullshit. You know, like what if superheroes were real? How would we actually deal with them? They would probably be as awful as Donald Trump, <laughs> you know, and I feel like it's. Those two that try to actually make really edgy, but really important conversations that appeal to to sort of my sensibility as an artist, because they actually talk about things I'm interested in. That's my honorable mention as well.
0: Um, Atlanta, mine is uh, two and one, Atlanta season three and four. Both of these seasons prove once again that Atlanta is one of the best shows ever to grace our screens. It came back really, really strong with a really fantastic first episode was kind of leaning into a lot of the more experimental qualities of season two later in season three which I didn't adore but I thought was interesting to explore and I think more so now that it's an entire piece now that Atlanta is all on the same platform it's actually just a really good streaming show for that reason because it's a great uh, show to pick up episode by episode and just put one on the docket and play it and be like okay so this is cool and this is an interesting satire of something I would actually say in many ways it's more an anti-culture show in the way that it just sort of bucks culture. It takes a lot of the preconceived notions of what makes a sitcom and completely eschews them. And I think the final episode in season four, the very, very last episode ever, does a really great job of being a season finale because it both bucks the culture and doesn't go full Seinfeld on its season finale in a way that makes it so that you feel kind of warm and fuzzy, but don't feel like you are being coddled, which is something that I think a lot of season finales do especially in setcoms. and so beautiful you mean series finale right well yeah it's the series finale it was also it was the end of the season too just checking amazing amazing show and
1: as of now that's all we get for atlanta Time for our top five, Jordan. And this time, how about you start with your fifth? Number five for me, Euphoria Season 2. So
0: we've talked a little bit about this. We actually talked about this on our very, very first episode. Euphoria, one of my faves. Euphoria Season 2 ups the game for me, um, has one of my favorite episodes of the year. Run, Rue with Rue running around town. Run, Rue, run. <laughs> and it's, what more can you say about the show? It's frenetic. Its energy is so unique. It is a beautiful amalgamation of both low and high art. It has a lot of esoteric goals and ideas, but it's based in the teen drama of like early two thousand skins. And it's got an all-star cast. And every single one of these cast members, no matter how big they play in the show, brings their game. It's my number five because I think it is not necessarily crafted to be on its own. I think that it relies pretty heavily on the special episodes to bring the narrative because like the character of Jules doesn't really get a whole lot to do and um, most of that is reliant on the fact that she had a whole episode to herself and the Euphoria Season 2 kind of acts as an epilogue to that. Similarly, the characters of Rue and, you know, Cindy sweeney and a lot of other people you know alexa demi they all kind of get a new chunk to bite off of in this season in a way that's really cool and really unique again all-star cast beautiful show enough said on that
1: um what is your number five i wanted to say thanks you want to talk about euphoria yeah, I want to talk about Euphoria. Come on, let's do it. I mean, Run Roo Run is, I think, the best episode of this year. Uh, but even though that was like the best episode ever of this year, like I couldn't put it in my top five list purely because there were so many other things that I was like, wow, this is tough and stiff competition. But what makes Euphoria amazing, because I really wanted to add to what you were saying is um it's just a natural evolution of the teen drama that makes it even more grounded and more real compared to the other ones that we have seen growing up like the OC and Gossip Girl you know those were like the initial teen dramas and eventually like eh, Skins you know made its way like it became its thing in England but then when it tried to move here it wasn't successful a show like Shameless that also was edgy also focused on young people but more focused on like a family that was disenfranchised in England and also in the south side of chicago when it moved here but euphoria was just a natural progression of that where it looked at what hbo was doing and the rest of its shows and they were like okay we should bring that to teenagers but ironically and wonderfully it shows a more accurate picture of teen life at 2022 than all the other teen dramas that we've ever experienced before
0: yeah it's so much more what actually happens in high schools than something like Gossip Girl but at the same time also does the Gossip Girl thing of like school isn't important it's more sort of like the um, cognitive world of teens where like school means nothing to teenagers even though they spend most of their time at school but in Euphoria school just doesn't exist practically it's like I mean it exists Euphoria High is the name of the school that we all talk about it but that's not really what it's called in the story. They don't call it Euphoria High. It's funny also that you called it Run Rue Run. I want to, I want to, um, just because we should be a little bit factual on this podcast, although I think I rarely am. Henry Miller's book, Stand Still Like the Hummingbird, is the title of uh, the episode. All of the titles have this esoteric reference to something interesting. I actually just found this out as I was uh, scrolling through for our tops, that one of them, Ruminations, Big and Little Bullies, is the one, I think, that largely had the, um, 80s soundtrack, with Cal uh, Jacobs and that's based off of a Rauschenberg painting title fascinating uh, but
1: yeah no, I was just going to s- agree with you that you're at right, high school isn't important it's used more as like an outlet for these characters to run amok you know like they're <laughs> especially like Sydney Sweeney's uh, character when she does like her runway like outfits using the school halls as like a runway towards like uh, Nate Jacobs yeah it's, it's her way of showing
0: off and be like I'm a baddie I'm exactly like my bestie man Maddie. Yeah, Cassie and Maddie. I keep calling them by their their actor names. It's so easy now that these people are like cultural sensations, right? To be like, yeah,
1: uber famous. Yeah, yeah
0: to be like, Oh, my
1: God, like, <laughs> Miss how amazing okay what's your number five babe uh my number five is actually like a dark horse it is chainsaw man that we are going to be covering next month yeah Ooh. okay so lead us in a little bit on chainsaw
0: man and i'm gonna stay quiet just for the time being because i'm still watching it but give us a little taste tell us about it and then we'll let it slide and i'll go for my number four
1: So Chainsaw Man is an anime based on a manga by Tatsuki Fujimoto. It is like the cultural sensation that is happening right now in Japan. It is considered one of the best selling mangas out there right now. And it's actually fully done with its first saga. So its first major storyline that the anime is currently covering. The anime recently released like, like it adapted the first two volumes out of, I think, like six volumes in the first 13 episodes. And those 13 episodes in particular were incredible. Uh, what I really love about Chainsaw Man is that it takes, you know, that shonen or action sort of genre and manga and basically really makes it filled with incredible depth and grittiness, but also it just gives the main character who has almost no aspirations other than living a minutely normal life, the most basic of aspirations. And th- because he's given just like the bare minimum motivation, it's so fascinating because every little thing. Every time he gets like a semblance of a normal life on his journey, it makes him incredibly happy because he starts off in a place where he's essentially an indentured servant to uh, a big mafia organization in Japan. And like I said, it's also what's really interesting about the shonen genre in general in Japan is that it's their take of the superhero culture that we have in the States. So essentially Chainsaw Man is just like Asian superheroes or like a take of Asian superheroes, but just done in a way that feels far more realistic and cruel. Like I would actually compare it, Chainsaw Man, more to Euphoria than I would to um, the MCU, which I think is so fascinating and why I'm like, oh my God, you should watch this show. Also, I know Jordan is still watching it right now, but one of the best, elements about Chainsaw Man is that it actually has film compositions. Every time I watch an episode, I'm like, hmm, somebody actually storyboarded this stuff and tried to do visual metaphors and tried to be an actual filmmaker with, with these with these frames. And I think that's amazing. I think it, it should be way more implicit,
0: especially with animation, but so rarely is here in the States. So I'm glad to see it. My number four is Hulu's The Bear. So this show is also in its first season. You might, might be on your list i don't know it's a just like equally to euphoria like frenetic occasionally really 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 stressful show about the world of like the kitchen and Mm -hmm. it's also something that's a story that's very personal to you and me niv because we were both huge foodies in the chicago scene and i was like and
1: just chicagoans in general
0: well we were both chicagoans but we were chicagoans who ate a whole lot we were famous for our food adventures um famous to you and me alone our, our podcast back then was only in our minds
1: and, and it was about food <laughs> was.
0: we literally we would literally like practice podcasting about food so yeah but it uh at the end of would we come back when we were talking about Italian beef my answer was always a resounding yes because I loved an Italian beef and I love the show about Italian beef I can't wait to see what they do with the second season the bear to me almost 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 perfect like a nine point point nine 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 out of 10 almost perfect show except for the the last episode but (laughs) we talked about that on our program on the bear feel free to go back and watch it do you have any little tags about the bear
1: again i feel like the best shows and best movies and best stories in general just tie and ground themselves in culture and the chicago culture is so vibrant and for those out there that are like what what is chicago culture you're kidding that doesn't exist google it it has its own wikipedia page i showed it to someone who i know from wisconsin and she was like she said the same thing Chicago has no culture and I'm like "Mm." when I google Wisconsin culture that doesn't exist or even Milwaukee culture that doesn't exist but when I but there's so much Wisconsin culture yeah but not as much you just gotta you gotta go there you can't find it on the internet you gotta go there it's not the same as Chicago culture Chicago culture has rules it has methods it has its own cuisine it has its own like feel and talk and and vibrancy to it that is just quintessential midwest what's your uh, number four buddy my number four is house of the dragon heck yeah so we talked about this uh, one too don, don, don. yeah i feel like most of our choices will be things that we've talked about my next two we haven't spoken about much at all that's a good sign. But House of the Dragon, I mean, I, I felt like I had to choose it because it had everything going against it. I mean, it was a prequel follow up to the hottest show on television, uh, which was Game of Thrones that defined a generation of television and ended very, very badly. So it had that not only being a follow up to this great show that ended terribly, <laughs> and also had to redeem said show and said universe, it had to be different and had to stand on its own. And in that first half of House of the Dragon, it it didn't achieve that. It wasn't until the second half that it became purely independent and purely its own show. And when it stood on its own, it was amazing. I mean, just Lord of Tides, for instance, ama- like an incredible episode that I highly recommend. And response to even like, I will say it again, run, rue, run episode in Euphoria. I just think it was House of the Dragon actually achieved would at certain episodes, television peak. And it had so much... I know I'm like fussing about this because I'm just trying to say this absolutely correctly. Totally. I just think everything could have gone wrong. Everything could have gone wrong with that show, and it didn't. It, in fact... oh, I mean, it almost did. We talked about this on the
0: episode. It, they yeah. made an entire pilot that they scrapped because it just it didn't work, and it's really hard to recreate the magic of Game of Thrones. And with the first couple episodes, although they were
1: weaker, they still did achieve that. And I mean, like, right now, I'm more excited about the second season of House of the Dragon than I am about anything else, which is saying something, because I feel like even though... We talked about it. One of the weaker parts of House of the Dragon is that it felt like a massive prologue, but a really fascinating and really conflict-driven prologue. But now we're getting to the true conflict, the true meat of the story, and that is really exciting. I feel like it will be a tour de force in its second season when it comes out my number three is something that I did recommend
0: to you I don't know if you've ever watched it but it is really truly one of the more unusual things it's got kind of this Lynchian quality but to me it's like Twin Peaks meets Yellowstone because it follows this new like neo-western frontier that's sort of been built slowly by the Paramount Corporation with Yellowstone and a lot of Yellowstone's kind of uh, spin-off shows that's Outer Range on Amazon so Outer Range is this kind of oddball show. It was coming out along the same time as a lot of other shows for the Emmy time consideration. There was like a ton of shows that were all kind of front loaded. So a lot of this stuff ended up kind of getting lost. Outer Range almost didn't make it to getting a second season luckily I think it is. But it's starring Josh Pearl and Imogen Poots. It's about the Abbott family and the particularly the patriarch of the family which is this like really big deal in this new style of Western like modern Westerns is this old kind of stuck in his ways patriarch kind of representing the like Republican everyman who's sort of been cast aside by modern society and the internet and this guy just wants to like live on the land and be left alone and everyone tries to mess with him. and Berlin plays that part perfectly but also there is this extra element that sort of takes over that arcing narrative which is that there is a giant black pit that seems to be something supernatural in his backyard. And then that's the show. Amazing, amazing program from Amazon. I thought for a minute that Amazon was going to win the streaming wars this year because of this show. This and then Chloe, which is also on my honorable mentions. Two shows that just absolutely ruled at the first top of the year. And then they dropped the Rings of Power show and I think kind of lost it. but
1: And ruined everything. And then they mortared... Everything, <laughs>
0: mordored everything.
1: There was suddenly a big text on Amazon. Oh yeah, uh, which was just Mordor. It's just
0: like the Oppenheimer Doomsday Clock here in Culver City. Yeah, on my uh, commute to work for a couple of months, I just saw this like giant ticker going, <laughs> like down, 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 and then they finally removed the Oppenheimer Doomsday Clock because I think it was costing the budget too much money to have something with electronics running 24/7. But maybe it's back. Honestly. Anyway, enough about Oppenheimer.
1: Team Barbie um, my my top my top three. yeah, what's what's your number three? It is Anne Rice's interview with the vampire. Ooh, which I am so sad we didn't cover because I really wanted to. Yeah, I also didn't get to talk about this with you, um, but it's also a little hard to find. I think
0: it's on uh, AMC. So it is. It's on AMC+. Talk to me about it. What makes it a unique take on Interview with a Vampire? I know they made a movie of it.
1: Yeah, they made a movie. I mean, it's based on the Anne Rice books, and the movie was with... Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. Yeah, it was a huge movie at the time. So it was like young versions of them and Kristen Dunst. And I think the show just does it a lot more justice. I mean, it finally caught up. I mean, there, there have been many cases where they tried to do a movie about like a book many, many years ago and that didn't really work or it wasn't as successful because obviously there were more books or the book was just too long to adapt respectfully. So interview with a vampire eventually caught up and they were like, we should make a television show about this. And when I first heard about it, I was like, I don't want to watch another vampire show. This is just ridiculous. This is like the worst sort of genre ever. At first, it was True Blood and the originals and the vampire diaries. And I could go on and on and on and on. But it's also
0: almost like finding another Hunger Games ripoff in 2022, you know? Like, that stuff was 10 years ago. I thought we were over it. And so when you said you were watching Interview with a Vampire, I was like, whatever. And then I remember you texted me being like, this is really good. I was like, what?
1: It is really good because it treats its characters like what they are, which is human. They don't treat them as like these sexy vampires, you know, that most of the other shows have done as like these boy toy imaginations of what human beings should be. But instead, you know, it's, it's treating what vampirism is, which is this great, powerful disease that they have to suffer. It gives them so many gifts, but at the same time, it's this cruel curse that they have to deal with. So it's taking it back to its roots of that gothic Dracula sort of vibe. But just in New Orleans, in 1910's New Orleans, and the main character is also Creole African American, so he has to deal with the racism in the South of that time and how you know, that can be grounded with how outcasted vampires are. You know, so it's talking about really important things through fantasy or through something that's a little bit more um, artistic. But, you know, one of my favorite things about The Wire or The Bear or uh, shows that really inhabit like a city is that the city itself just feels like another character. And the reason I love Interview with a Vampire is because it treats New Orleans as just another character in its story. But it, it doesn't just take place in new orleans it takes place in two time sort of periods one is present day in dubai where the interview actually takes place and then in the 1910s in new orleans and what's especially special about this show is that the main character is an unreliable narrator so we don't know who to trust but that just adds more tension to the story and it makes it that even if you watch the movie or read the books you're still going to be surprised that's what makes it a particularly brilliant adaptation because it moves beyond just being an adaptation. It tries to transcend it. So highly recommend it. It makes a case
0: for being an adaptation from a book that at its time was kind of pulpy, like Anne Rice was kind of known for pioneering that pulpy vampire romance genre. But still, like she was acclaimed and that was one of the acclaimed books of her career. And so I'm glad that she's finally getting her notice. You know, I hope to see a lot of that with like Stephen King, because I think that is a similar note where a lot of times they made these movies they made these um, stories and then just didn't quite get to the scale of what they were attempting to achieve. So yeah that's that's really cool. Alright, I think it's time to move to our number twos. My number two is a Star Wars show called Andor, by, uh, created by Tony Gilroy. So Gilroy of course finished up the movie from a couple of years ago called Rogue One um, Rogue One was Garrick Edwards' passion project. Edwards ended up leaving the, he was dishonorably dis- discharged halfway through the production or on a, I don't know. I don't know what the real story was behind that. I'm sure Gareth Edwards is doing just fine. He actually, I know he's doing just fine. Cause he's got another movie coming out next year, this year when you're listening to the program, but amazing show Nicholas Britell does the soundtrack. He also did the soundtrack to my number six TV show of this year, which was succession, which I'll talk about succession some other time. Love that show. It's just, you know, it's one of my faves just constantly, but Nicholas Britell does a really interesting job bringing a different timbre of star wars music there's something to the tv version of the star wars soundtracks that i find to be really interesting because they are incorporating some elements of electronics in there whereas previously star wars had that very john williams-esque sound because john williams crafted the entire nine issue saga of the star wars story of the star wars mythos and so now that we're moving into a non williams non george lucas era obviously we're far past lucas's era but you get kind of this new take on Star Wars, and that's what Gilroy does so well, is that he sort of takes what could be like this Cold War-era spy drama and ports it into the dawn of the Empire. And you get all these characters that are either from the Rogue One story, so Andor obviously is from Rogue One, Force Whitaker is Saw Gerrera, that's the big one, Forrest Whitaker gets to come back, Mon Mothma is... character from the very 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 first trilogy and she gets a really big part in this story and oh my goodness the Mon Mothma moments in the later episodes to me are what makes this series go from being something that I thought was just really well written and really well crafted the dialogue has never been better in a Star Wars show but it just took it to another level for me and a near perfect piece of storytelling Andor, man can't wait for the second season that's for me that is my most anticipated second season. Oh, also the character of Cyril is a new character, and Cyril Karn is so fascinating, because he's like kind of a wimp, but he feels like someone, and that's something that is the case for most of this show, feels like something or someone that you know, even though it's in a galaxy far, far away. It feels very familiar, and feels very, like, homey. Oh, my goodness, and Stellan Sarsgaard. <laughs> I, I made this mistake a couple episodes ago. Um, Stellan Sarsgaard is Luthen. Luthen gets his monologue in, I think it's episode Episode 8 or episode 9 where he has like this monologue about the futility of hope in a revolution which is this interesting converse to the story that the Star Wars saga was telling which is like he has lost hope in order to pursue this goal. Amazing show. Enough said
1: on that. Did you finish Andor, Niv? As you know, I have like a bad taste in my mouth from Rogue One. Niv, your number two. My number two is the. Da, 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 the bear. <laughs> the bear, which we already talked about. Exactly. But to add to it, I mean, I think what's really interesting is the other three shows I mentioned. You know, you have to deal with actual like monsters, whether they be vampires or dragons or chainsaw men. These shows, in terms of like their Tension and their conflict remind us that the most dangerous and scariest creature of all is human beings because the things that happen in the bear's restaurant are more tense than entire battle scenes in house of the dragon and that is a testament to how powerful the story of the bear is and how human it is and i feel it's those kinds of shows that remind us that you know the best kind of storytelling is the one that hits closest to home or the ones that we are just out of reach and we also talked about, I believe, in Spencer, like how a team in a restaurant in the kitchen is called a brigade and how that's like a military term. It definitely feels like a battlefield. And but again, that's what makes it so fascinating. Something that is is so conceptually just out of reach. We are aware that kitchens are tense, but we are not aware that they're they can be so tense that they're abusive and they can destroy a person's life on so many levels, whether it be mental, physical and emotional. And that's why it's so ripe for drama, let alone in one of the best and toughest cities, not just in the United States, but in the world that is the beast that is Chicago or sorry, the bear that is Chicago. What's
0: insane is I feel like half the people don't realize that. And those are the half of the people who've watched the bear and the other half, which I've talked to several people who have been, I can't watch this show because of this trauma, like literally because like some people have that with like triangle of sadness. If you are, uh, if you have a phobia or have some kind of trauma against vomiting you want to stay clear triangle of sadness in a similar way like if you've worked in the restaurant industry and have had a very very bad experience maybe you should should stay away from the bear art number twos have something in common though which is even Moss baccarat who plays a character in andor too all right my number one you ready yeah i mean i know (laughs) what it is. you guessed before we got on air yeah my number one is barry season three perfect season of television a great sort of amalgamation of everything that came before in some ways it kind of feels like a final season in just the way that it takes all of the previous themes and ideas and brings it to an epic magnificent final episode so it's almost like the reverse of Atlanta for me where with Atlanta I felt like once I reached the final episode I was like no maybe we could see it for another couple of years but you know it's fine that they want to leave it where it is with Barry I'm like how are they going to top this how are they going to keep this going how are they going to roll this boulder further? And I'm fascinated. And we've talked a lot about it. Obviously, we talked about it on our podcast. So if you want to hear me talk about it more, go listen to me talk about it. <laughs> go click around. That's that's all I have to say about that. Um, what's your thoughts on Barry? Do you have anything to say before you want to talk about your number one? It was
1: tough for me because like I also love the newest season of Barry. I just keep comparing it to the other two seasons. And I think the other two seasons are structurally better. Like I appreciate how courageous uh, season three is is and what it tries to do. And it is very powerful. But at the same time, it does feel like an ending. And even though I am excited for what's going to happen next, because it feels so definite and it's ending, I by the end of it, I was like, Okay, I am sort of done. Why? Why should I care? And that was sort of like a disappointed feeling because I, I felt like when you get to that sort of ending where you're like, all right, we're done, but we're not actually done. It just leaves like this weird feeling. And I feel like that's the intention. But also, because that is the intention. I compare it to other shows that are just like, we're, we're new, we're fresh, we're trying to do something truly different because Barry is a continuation of something versus a show like The Bear that we just talked about or Interview with the Vampire, which, again, is taking something really old and making it super new again. But yeah, I Barry o- will always be one of my top 10 shows of all time. I just think that before I can reconcile with my actual feelings about it as a whole, I need to watch the next season before I can even feel a correct critique about this particular season, which is interesting.
0: I actually had that same thing with Atlanta. I watched season three and I was like, okay, I don't really know how I feel about this. But then retroactively with season four, I felt more comfortable saying that season three was really, 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 really good.
1: All right, let's go. You're number one. I know, here we are, we've made it. <laughs> My top choice for the best television show of the year, and I can't state this enough, is the show, da, da, the... rings of power oh god no. <laughs> It's Chloe. I'm glad you put
0: it on your list. I know. Someone had to. And there were, you know, it's one of those things when there's five other shows that I liked more than Chloe, I I can't justify putting Chloe on my top five, but I think it's on
1: my top 10. Yeah, I really think it's on my top 10 because it's it's so good. So much. There's so much. I mean, just structurally alone, it's perfect. I can count uh, shows on my hand that I think are structurally perfect. And what I mean by that is that they go full circle without even leaving the tiniest loose send. And the creators of that show knew what it, what they wanted to do. They set themselves a very specific goal with the amount of episodes they wanted to do. And then they just did it. They told a full rounded story with full rounded characters. And sometimes that's all you need. If, in fact, I wish that's all oftentimes what you needed just to make a perfect show. And I feel like Chloe as, as close, as perfect as you can get with a television show. Especially because like the way it hooks you into its premise is fascinating, right? The whole idea that there is this woman who's our main character, who's obsessed with this other character by constantly scrolling over her Instagram and stalking her Instagram. And eventually she discovers that that person dies, you know? And then she is so obsessed with understanding like how this perfect woman that she's been stalking has decided to take her own life like because it's insinuated that it is a suicide. Her obsession with discovering the reason why she died eventually allows her a platform to take over her life. But of course, just that's just the first surface. As you and I know, because it gets so much deeper than it and the show turns itself on its head uh, very quickly, but it's brilliant and it does it in a very short time. And because it does something that's so well-rounded and does something that's so unique in such a short span of time, you know, I can't give enough credit because it deserves all the credit I could possibly give.
0: I I don't know if I could say it better myself. That show was, it was masterful. And I didn't see enough people talking about it. I don't think I've seen very many critics really get into Chloe as a show because it was, it wasn't, it was released a little bit later in um, the summertime, but it sort of just um, landed on, maybe it was bigger overseas, but it landed on Amazon and I didn't see a whole lot of people picking it up.
1: But doesn't it say so much that it came out in the middle of the summer and then like the train started really rolling with the Amount of amazing television shows in that second half of the year, and yet Chloe and both are less i mean, in top in your top ten, but literally my top one—it stuck with it. It stuck with it the entire way. That's the greatness in
0: our top tens, and it also is interesting because it has a lot of themes. Brings it full circle. Has a lot of themes in the internet, and that's something I was talking about right at the top. With we're all going to the World's Fair, which is this parasocial relationship that you have with another person and the ways in which that can negatively uh, affect your mental health. That's where I think. I think this all kind of comes full circle and uh, the themes that we've been dealing with culturally over the last couple of years and that how powerful media can be in telling the stories and in turn investigating the ways in which we interact socially in this new year. And speaking of, happy 2023, everyone. Happy 2023. I know you, viewer. You, Niv, and me are all living in three different times. (laughs) You're living on New Year's Eve. I'm recording this the day before, and you all are listening to this on the first <laughs> or thereafter you can listen to it at any point after that but in turn we are beginning a new season of zeitgeist as i mentioned we're going to be nailing into some anime coming up uh, yeah our next episode i think we'll have to be talking about netflix because those things are just coming out and i bet a lot of other people are watching them so our netflix episode we'll, we'll talk off mic about how we're going to be nailing into it but netflix we're going to be talking about pinocchio very soon we're definitely going to be talking about Chainsaw Man, and we're going to be talking about a bunch of other stuff, and you all are going to be finding it out along with us. <laughs>
1: so, with
0: that, I'm going to close us off for the day. I'm Jordan Conrad, and I am the Evil boss.
1: Happy New Years, everyone! Happy New Years. Take care. Be safe out there.